everybody! Welcome back to my second self and I. I am Matt. I am also Alex. Hello! I am also all of the other voices you'll hear on this show. It's just something that I do to add a little bit of depth and color to the show. Thank you everybody who listened to last week's episode on the Kentucky Vampire Cult. If you haven't yet, I hope you get a chance to do that. But for now, since you're already here, why don't you stick around for a little while? Give me 30 to 45 minutes of your time while you're driving or cleaning the house or doing goat yoga or whatever the hell the new workout trend is. As long as you're listening, I'll be happy. And as long as you are listening, let me tell you what's happening today. Also, sorry to your eardrums last week. My loud teenager bits were a smidge too clippy and I didn't catch it in time. But I'll be sure to keep that in mind for any future eardrums that may want to remain intact. Today is a ghost story. But it's also a murder story. But it's also the ghost that gets murdered, and this is the tone of voice that sets itself up to be a flawless segue into telling all of you out there that this is a comedy show. But it's also also a true crime show. Now, I've gotten a few raised eyebrows lately from people I've pitched the show to about how true crime and comedy work together, so allow me to set that up for you here just a wee bit. In my humblest of opinions, I believe that the best way to process tragedy, trauma, or any horrible situation is to be able to laugh about it. Fortunately, there's usually something in any true crime case that kind of makes you scratch your head and say, what the hell did they do that for? Those are the moments I live for on this show. I make jokes, I do goofy voices, sometimes I'll have a fake ad or a commercial. I swear probably more than I should, and I go off script and kind of just flow into lines of thought sometimes, but it all comes back around eventually to a cohesive and entertaining story where hopefully at the end of it we all learned something, had a good time with something otherwise kind of horrible and hard to digest. So if you haven't already turned this off, I super appreciate you. And how about we talk about a time 220 years ago when a ghost got shot in the face and fucking died? Yeah, now who are you going to call? This is going to be fun today. This story starts all the way back in 1803 and sort of isn't really resolved until 1983. And perhaps even better than an old-timey antique murder, it's not even in this country. We're going to London today, specifically in the area of Hammersmith. That reminds me. I should give an extra disclaimer for if anybody over there is listening to this. I can't tell this story without doing accents and voices, but my English accent tends to devolve into Australian for some fucking reason, and I haven't quite figured out how to fully correct that, so when that happens, cause it will, just know that I'm trying, and I know that you don't really sound like this. Yeah? Right. We'll, we'll see if I get better at this today. Quick show of hands. Who here has been to London in 1803? Okay, a couple of you have your hands up, and that's genuinely unexpected. I've not been there, though, so let's see what's happening over there leading up to our story, which I believe begins in November. King George III is the reigning monarch, and he has a rather full plate of wars and plots and massacres and expeditions to oversee. He's the king, but also early in the year, the first practical steamboat was invented, so that'll help with commerce on a small level, at least. February 21st, 1803 was a busy day in the world. Halfway around it, on the other side, in Mexico, they were experiencing the totality of a solar eclipse. Meanwhile, back over here in London, Colonel Edward Despard was the last person to be sentenced to be hanged, drawn, and quartered. Not the only insane sentencing we'll see today, but his sentence was commuted to just regular hanging and beheading, no quartering. Which occurred at a place with a really cool name, too, the Horsemonger Lane Jail, spelled G-A-O-L in front of 20,000 people. That is so many fucking people. Like, logistically, how would that work? How would you fit that many people in one area 
that they could all see what was happening. It's one guy. I mean, I know London was crowded AF at that time, but 20,000 in a town square for one execution? And how little else was there to do that day? Nobody had a job or a trade to do? 20,000 people in London in 1803 just took the day off or from fighting in one of the many wars they were involved in just to watch a guy get his head chopped off? Well, if that many people are available to go watch an execution, maybe they could have bolstered the local economy a little bit by selling tickets. This ad is brought to you by King's Crown Tavern. This Monday, 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 you don't want to miss the adrenaline charge action. Get your asses out of your houses and down to the King George Coliseum for an unbelievable action-packed evening. What are you going to tell your friends on Tuesday? Tell them you are supporting your country by watching a traitor get his head chopped off. Adults can get a voucher for three shillings off with any purchase at the King's Crown Tavern and it's family night, so kids' tickets are only five shillings. You don't want to miss this unmistakably epic night of full-throttle action. Stop by our apothecary vendors for a tincture of stamina for only two shillings apiece, or one of our many street food stalls to keep you energized. Fried fish, hot eels, pickled whelks, penny pies, plum duff, sheep's trotters, meat puddings, chelsea buns, crumpets, and brandy balls. We've got it all for the fan that needs it all. This is sure to be an unstoppable night of wall-to-wall -wall action you can't afford to miss. This exclusive one-night-only event at the King George Coliseum will have you holding onto your head as one man loses his. Get here this Monday, Monday, Monday! Venue is not responsible for any stabbing, maiming, throbbing, or other injuries sustained by any unforeseen mob violence. I would have absolutely bought a ticket for that if they did that back then. Drawn and quartered, by the way, is when they hang you almost to the point of death, emasculate you, cut your head off, disembowel you, and then chop you into four separate pieces to be displayed around town as a warning to other traders, which just sounds like such a barbaric way to do things for the time it happened in. Women would just be burned at the stake for high treason, which honestly sounds a little bit better. <laughs> Maybe it's not, I don't know, but if I'm still alive even a little bit and somebody starts chopping away at my crotch, I think I'll take my chances with the fire. At least maybe I'd pass out before I felt too much pain. But that does also send a very clear and strong message to potential wrongdoers. Either follow our rules and be kind to people, or we'll chop your dick off and burn your wife. But what else is going on in London right now? The Napoleonic Wars? A guy named Matthew Flinders circumnavigates Australia for the first time like a fucking champion? Way to go, other Matt. And lots and lots of people died because of insurrections or plots or political upheaval, like the Lord Chief Justice of Ireland being hacked to death. Jesus Christ. The ground has been soaked in blood for centuries leading up to and including the events of this story. And we all know that areas where lots of people have died are just ripe for ghost stories, and that is exactly the kind of perfectly seamless segue I was looking for to get to the next part of our story. A ghost has been spotted in the graveyard outside of St. Paul's Church in Hammersmith, and people are beginning to worry. We've barely even made it into the new year, which is now 1803, and someone or something has been causing trouble for the villagers. Talk amongst them suggests that the culprit may be a suicide victim from the previous year. I don't know the guy's name, but he supposedly slit his own throat, brutal, the year before, and then and then was buried at the church. You, you gotta really want it for that, right? Like, how do you do that? Suicide victims being buried on consecrated grounds means that the spirit is unable to rest. Since unaliving yourself is an easy way to lock yourself out of heaven, many people believed his spirit was responsible for the recent trouble. 
Around one o'clock in the morning, made known by the loud-ass church bells ringing throughout the village, a figure cloaked in white had been seen in the fields near Black Lion Lane and the church. The figure installed fear in the hearts and minds of weary travelers. A horse-drawn wagon driver, a man named Mr. Russell, saw the ghost and immediately jumped out and ran away on foot, leaving behind not only his wagon, but eight horses and 16 people just fucking left him there in the dark. Oh shit, a ghost! Bye! He got scared so bad he quit his job he quit his job mid-shift and just left him there in the dark with a ghost. Fucking good luck, guys. See ya. Another time, there was a pregnant woman in front of the church where, around 10 o'clock, she saw a very tall and very white figure rising up from the tombstones. Ooh. It ran toward her as she tried to run away and grabbed her arm, which, of course, caused her to faint. I've heard that before, actually. If a ghost touches you, you'll faint immediately. That's why they try to stay away from you so often. I found a passage in an old book written about this, and I love the way they wrote things back then. Check this out. She attempted to run, but the supposed ghost soon overtook her, and pressing her in his arms, she fainted. In which situation she remained some hours till discovered by the neighbors, who kindly led her home, when she took to her bed, from which, alas, she never rose. I don't know if I'm getting any better at this, but that... Maybe? A little better last time? Less Australian? A little bit, at least? Maybe? Alright, whatever. What the fuck is going on in this town? Ghosts hiding behind tombstones, scaring pregnant women to death, forcing wagon drivers into early retirement? Something is not quite right in Hammersmith, and the residents are fed up with it. A man named William Girdler, love that name, witnessed the apparition shedding off one of its white garments that later turned out to be... A regular old tablecloth that just anybody could have had. And this got people thinking. Okay, maybe this isn't a ghost, but just some dude out there causing trouble. So what's to be done? What do we do? Well, that's easy. They waited until nightfall, when they were sure that the ghost would be out and about. And then, they packed up all their shit and moved away. We're tired of living in this ghost-infested hellhole. We're out of here. I've had it with Bill and his Damn choir rehearsals and all these stupid ghosts walking around the street scaring us. I'm tired. I'm going next door to Smithtown, and I don't know what's next door in England. I'm going to get back on with it now. Actually, what they really did is much more intimidating. They went patrolling the streets with guns and weapons so they can wail on whoever's scaring everybody in town. Only problem with that is there are tons and tons of side paths and walking lanes all over Hammersmith, so it wound up being kind of tricky to cover all their tracks. So who's to blame, really? Is it a ghost? Is it just some dude in a sheet? Is the town being punished for something? Is God mad at them? Is it something else supernatural that can't yet be explained by natural laws? Well, what if I told you it was actually just a run-of-the-mill Scooby-Doo villain? I, <laughs> I promise I'm not making this part up. A shoemaker named John Graham was attempting to get revenge on his apprentices. Why? because his apprentices scared the shit out of his children last Halloween by telling them scary ghost stories. Duh! How do you get revenge? Dressing up like a ghost is like the first thing they fucking tell you in revenge school. It's like, lesson 101. Yeah! Those pesky apprentices will be so scared they'll never bother me or anyone else in town again! <laughs> by now, everybody in town's fed up with John's bullshit. Perhaps none more than a man named Francis Smith, Franny. He, more than anyone, wanted to put this foolish apparition to rest, and January 3rd was his big chance. He met William Girdler around 11 p.m. and armed himself with a shotgun. Both men told the other they'd, quote, take the ghost if possible, and went off about the patrol. 
While strolling down Black Lion Lane, Francis catches a glimpse of the specter out of the corner of his eye. Smith called out twice to the scary ghost. Damn you! Who are you? What are you? The figure either didn't hear him or chose not to respond, so he calls out again. Damn you! Damn you, I'll shoot if you don't respond! And before the thing can respond, his finger had instinctively pulled the trigger out of fear for his life. Francis went over to check it out, but it turned out to be... Not a ghost at all, but a man. And then he hears very faintly, Thomas! 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 Wait, Thomas? Upon realizing he shot a person instead of a ghost, Francis hauled ass away to go get help. He had shot the man through the lower jaw and out the back of his neck with his shot, which killed him almost instantly, very quickly, if not instantly. And to make matters worse, I hear you over there, Alex. It wasn't even the guy that was dressing up like a ghost! What the shit? Why was he dressed like a ghost then? Well, he wasn't exactly dressed like a ghost, but he had been mistaken for one on a couple other occasions. How does that happen? His clothes were a side effect of his occupation, which was as a bricklayer, the uniform for which just happened to be white pants, white apron, white coat, white shoes, white socks, white fingernails, white hair, white glasses, white wristband, white necktie, you can probably tell it stopped after stopped being real after I said shoes. He could not have looked any more like a ghost than an actual ghost. While the rest of the town was out on patrol, he was making his way home from work, and on a couple separate occasions, someone saw him in his uniform. Oh no, a ghost! And then ran away. A tall figure wearing all white at night, just walking down the road by the church. Oh no, a ghost! Run away! These poor people in this town, just how scared must have they have been all day walking around? Oh, there he is! Where am I? The night of his death, he went over to his parents' and sister's house after work to see if maybe his wife had stopped by there as she had been out with Mr. Smith, the outrider, that day. I have no idea what that is or what that means, but I think it has something to do with horses? I'm not sure. They told him she'd not been by, but that he was welcome to wait around for a little while to see if she does come by. Half an hour came and went. Thomas went on his way, and on his way home, he encounters Francis Smith and his trigger finger, and now here we are. This has been a crazy fucking story so far. A man dresses up like a ghost to scare people, then a different, completely unrelated guy who isn't dressed like a ghost but kinda looks like one gets shot and killed while on his way home from work. Look, I know things weren't nearly as advanced back then and information wasn't as easy to come by, but I can't help but think they could have made things a lot easier on themselves if they'd only listened to what our next sponsor has to say. Have you or the town you live in been plagued by annoying ghosts? Is the house across the street from you making strange, unexplainable noises? Do you experience a deep, nagging desire to walk around the cemetery or other stereotypically spooky places at night? Hi, I'm Benjamin Samuelson, perpetually happy ghost hunter and cat owner. A lot of people ask me why I'm so happy all the time. I sleep easy knowing I'm safe from any and all forms of demonic possession, poltergeists, hauntings, or any other form of supernatural attack. How can I be so sure? I always make sure to bring my trusty EMF reader and motion-activated night vision camera everywhere I go. The EMF reader comes with an extendable and detachable antenna, making it easier to see those spirits that hang out in harder-to-reach areas. And the night vision camera is a must. Everyone knows ghosts are only visible in pale green light. Recently, my cat companion Trinity has been joining me on my ghost hunting adventures, and she's found it easier than ever to detect feline ghosts with our new line of motion-activated glow-in-the-dark EMF detecting catnip-infused cat balls. Just throw them in the general area that a cat ghost might be and wait to see if they flash and glow. Why am I telling you all this? Because I want to help you. 
I can make your ghost hunting dreams come true for the low prices of $299.95. I'll give you everything you need to hunt smarter, play harder, and sleep better. All you need to do is call me, Benjamin Samuelson, 555-6666. Act fast and Trinity says she'll throw in two of her favorite cat balls for free. I've never seen her do that before. Don't wait. Call today. I highly recommend you call him. He's my new favorite person. An innocent man has just been killed for absolutely no reason, and we're now left with the rather tricky task of legally navigating this melancholy catastrophe. I really think that if they just called that Samuelson guy, they could have figured this out without anybody dying. I'm just saying. Well, this is 220 years ago, Matt. How different is the investigation process? Surprisingly, not that different, actually. The coroner, Mr. Hodgson, examined the body the next day with the assistance of Mr. Flower, of course. I'm going to read this next part right out of the book. It says, quote, He found that the deceased had received a gunshot wound on the lower left jaw, a small shot, as he thought, number four, which penetrated to the vertebra of the neck and injured the spinal marrow, which is a continuation of the brain. The face of the deceased was black, and that blackness was occasioned by the discharge of powder from a gun. The wound in the jaw was doubtless the cause of Millwood's death. He knew Smith. He was not a vindictive, but, on the contrary, a remarkably mild man. Not only is the examination and autopsy process pretty much the same, but the medical reasoning and logic behind it is astonishingly accurate as well. We figured out now that the brainstem connects to the spine and is pretty much the main hub for all signals coming from and going into the brain which pilots the meat mech we call our bodies. I was not expecting medical science from 220 years ago to be so close to our own understanding. You know, I often find myself guilty of this when reading about ancient history or other things that happened a really long time ago. We really don't give ourselves enough credit as a species as often as we should. Humans are really fucking good at figuring shit out. And again, the way things are written back then will never not be interesting to me. I've gotten to read a lot of words I don't normally get to read and work those into this script, which I hope is interesting for you. Someone asked me that the other day. Yes, I'm absolutely reading a script. It'd be really difficult to memorize so much information in just a week and then regurgitate it back out without some sort of guidelines. It just sounds more natural because I write how I talk. Maybe if you've been curious about jumping into the podcast world or other content creator stuff, you can start there. Just literally talk yourself through a pilot and write it all down, see where it goes. Okay, back to story time. Mr. Hodgson determined Thomas was definitely killed by Francis's bullet. He didn't have like a heart attack or an aneurysm, the silent killer, that suddenly would have killed him before being struck by the small shot number four bullet, so it must have been Francis that killed him. I can't figure out an equivalent size for that bullet caliber by today's standards. If somebody knows or wants to tell me, get on Instagram, at FunnyBaldWaiter, that's me. Tell me stuff. This trial would end up haunting the courts, so to speak, for the next almost 200 years. Francis is the first to take the stand for the defense, and he chooses to defer to the counsel. However, this is not a decision he was allowed to make. Counsel could not speak on his behalf, only examine him as a witness. He then stated that he went out with no bad design or intention, and that when the unfortunate accident did happen, he did not know what he did. It was an accident! I didn't mean to kill anybody, I swear! Yeah, that's also what they say today a lot of times, too. Next person on the stand is Mrs. Fulbrook, Thomas's mother-in-law. She has an amazing quote about this, and I'm going to do my best not to butcher the accent this time. On the Saturday evening before his death, Thomas told me, two ladies and a gentleman had taken a fright at him as he was coming down the terrace thinking he was the ghost. He told them that he was no more a ghost than any of them and asked the gentleman if he'd wished for a punch in the head. 
I told him, you stupid adult pate, in the future you'd be wise to wear a great coat so you don't encounter any danger. She might not have called him that name. I feel like Thomas might not have been the most patient person in town. He's walking home from work and people are suddenly terrified of him. Are you a ghost? Are you evil or violent? What are you on about, you simmering twat? I'm just off work from laying brick. You fancy a punch in the head, innit? What if he said yes? Yeah, I've always wanted to fist to cuffs with the spirit. Come on, then. The next witness might just blow the roof off this entire fucking courtroom. He says that there is for sure a supernatural presence over in the churchyard. His name is also Thomas, a Mr. Thomas Groom. He was a servant to Mr. Burgess, a local brewer, so... We're now going off the word of a man whose job it is to help another man make beverages that have been known on occasion to alter the perception of reality. Let's see what he's got to say. Mr. Groom says that one night he and another servant were walking through the cemetery churchyard when something he did not see caught him by the throat. Gasp! Whatever could that thing have been? Could it have been possible that instead of a ghost, he merely choked on his own spit? I have to imagine a day of brewer's assistantry would be full of tasting and testing the products. He probably either choked on his own spit and couldn't breathe, I used to hate it when that happened, or maybe he was just a loudmouth drunk walking around the church at night and his friend had to shut him up. Or the most likely option, obviously, is that it was an actual ghost and that this town is just forever cursed. But it, you know, that's just one dumb American's opinion, what do I know? A number of other witnesses were called to the stand, and they all had remarkably kind things to say about the defendant. Mainly, that he was a kind, mild-mannered, level-headed man that wouldn't hurt a fly. And now it's time for the judge to address everybody. Lord Chief Baron Sir Archibald MacDonald. He basically explains that regardless of the intended actions behind Thomas's death, it's still murder. You know what? Hold on. Let's just let him tell it. Let's go back to the book again. His lordship observed that nothing which had been stated or had appeared in this case could possibly change the nature of the offense from murder. Although malice was necessary to make out the crime of murder, yet it was not necessary, according to law, to prove that the prisoner had known the deceased or had cherished any malices or, as was vulgarly called, spite against him. If a man should fire into the hall where he was sitting now and kill anybody at random, such a deed was murder. This would be exactly the same as if someone went out and pretended to be a vigilante superhero and accidentally killed somebody whilst trying to subdue them. Still counts as murder as it was a voluntary action. It was his own opinion and was confirmed by those of his learned brethren on the bench that if the facts stated in evidence were credible, the prisoner had committed murder. Okay, what about this hypothetical? Fast forward nine real life days on the day this comes out to July 4th. It's late, it's dark, you're piss hammered, and ah shit, wouldn't you know it, we done run down to mortal shales to pop off. Not to worry. This is America, damn it. America! And you're not about to look like a bitch in front of America on her birthday, are you? No, that's not how we do things. Then you pull, by the way, UK listeners, I know you don't do the 4th of July over there, I'm not that dumb, so just replace the 4th of July with like a different regional celebration, like, um, I don't know, the... Uh, Poo Sticks World Cup, I guess. Then you pull out your gun and start firing wildly into the air in all directions. Pew, 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 I can make my own explosions. And then you continue to party on through the night until you pass out next to the above ground pool at 1 a.m. with your pants around your ankles still holding a beer. Two days later, the police come knocking at the door and they've got some questions for you. Turns out, one of those bullets came back down because physics and landed squarely in the center of some poor man's head and it killed him. Through some brilliant detective work, the bullet is traced back to your gun. What do you think's gonna happen to you now? 
Are the police just there to tell you what happened? That sure would be nice, but probably not. You're probably going to jail for murder. You shot the gun, that bullet hit the guy, that guy died, that's fucking murder. There. The Americanized version of what a British judge said about a confusing murder case 220 years ago. Then after he's done addressing the jury with his very astute and easy to follow guidelines for what constitutes murder in his court, they retire to the deliberation chamber. I really hope that's what it's called. After about an hour or so, the jury returns and they've reached a verdict. They find him guilty of manslaughter. Lord Chief Baron Sir Archibald MacDonald's face at that moment was taken over by an involuntary reaction to the collective incompetency of the human race. We've all done this before. The implied face palm, you bloody fucking idiots. I could not have made myself more clear. Fine. Very well. Alright then. Have at it. Allow me to break it down a little bit further so that there can be truly no mistaking my instructions. The court have no hesitation whatever with regard to the law, and therefore... The verdict must be guilty of murder or a total acquittal from want of evidence. He's either guilty of murder or a free man. Come on guys, I only gave you two choices and you somehow managed to substitute your own even more wrong answer. It's like asking somebody if they want chocolate ice cream or vanilla ice cream and they respond with spaghetti. What the fuck? We're not talking about pasta. We're talking about a man's life and that man needs to be found either guilty of murder or not. So the jury finally figures out the correct answer for the judge and found him guilty of murder, and Lord Chief Baron Sir Archibald MacDonald very quickly responds with, The case, gentlemen, shall be reported directly to His Majesty immediately. See, he's not a totally heartless man. He understands the human nature behind what happened, but he's also a public figure in a court of law that he's sworn to uphold, so he has to enforce the law no matter what. I told you in the beginning that the drawing and quartering wasn't the only crazy sentencing we'd see today. After the verdict is rendered, Francis Smith is sentenced to death by hanging, followed by his immediate dissection for study. Maybe I am that ignorant, I don't know, but I didn't know that was a thing they did. After reading this, it makes sense, but it just never occurred to me what they did with the bodies after hangings. I guess I thought they just buried them somewhere? The entire courtroom is fixed upon this man, Francis, and can't help but sympathize with him. The problem with the jury isn't that they are dumb or stupid or ignorant. They didn't return the wrong verdict because they didn't understand what the judge was telling them to do. They knew that in all likelihood, a guilty verdict would spell death for this man who, they believed by all accounts, to be a good and gentle man who made a careless mistake one night. They didn't want to be responsible for his death any more than Francis wanted to be responsible for Thomas's. The real ghost does eventually come forward and admits that he was the one dressing up to scare people. Remember John Graham from way earlier? He doesn't receive any punishment at all. He's kind of indirectly responsible for this whole thing. He should at least get charged with something, right? They could have charged him with some sort of misdemeanor for dressing up like a ghost and scaring people, but nope. As far as I know, he just continued to live out his life as a shoemaker. No word on if his apprentice has scared his kids again. Not to worry, though. Graham isn't the only cracker to live out the rest of his life. <laughs> the king received word of the verdict passed down by Lord Chief Baron Sir Archibald MacDonald so quickly that by toll of seven that very evening, Francis' sentence was to be pardoned after serving a single year of imprisonment, after which he can fuck off to wherever he'd like. It doesn't matter. You're good. Strangely enough, the ghost came back about 20 years later, and this time it could breathe fire! What the fuck? I didn't know. I thought the last ghost died over 20 years ago. How did we end up getting haunted again? And how the fuck is it able to breathe fire? Ghosts don't even breathe fire. 
I've never heard of a fire-breathing ghost before now, and when I googled it, all I saw was cartoon drawings and a 10-hour YouTube video of the Flying Dutchman scaring some fish lady in the streets. Just... Or whatever sound, I don't know. And that was the running paranormal gag in town until the mid-1830s when the Spring Hill Jack began making its way through people's lexicons. This creature is kinda like if Mr. Tumnus was Hispanic and could jump really, really high. You know by now that I'll tell you if I'm making something up. This case stuck itself into the walls and corridors of the British legal system for damn near 200 years before it was finally resolved. In the case of R.V. William, the judge finally clarified. Alright, I've read this about 47 friggin' times now, and I'm still kinda confused, so... Let's take this line by line. In a case of self-defense, where self-defense or the prevention of crime is concerned, if the jury came to the conclusion that the defendant believed, or may have believed, that he was being attacked or that a crime was being committed, and that force was necessary to protect himself or to prevent the crime, then the prosecution have not proved their case. I think just because you believe you're right doesn't make you right. I'm sorry, officer, I'm colorblind. I thought it was green. Yet yeah, you're still getting a ticket for that. If, however, the defendant's alleged belief was mistaken, and if the mistake was an unreasonable one, that may be a peaceful reason for coming to the conclusion that the belief was not honestly held and should be rejected. If you were mistaken about your if you think a person has a gun, but it turns out to be just a water balloon, and you shoot them in self-defense, that's not self-defense. Okay, this last line is the most confusing to me, but I'm gonna try to put it in words we can all understand, and by we, I mean me. Even if the jury come to the conclusion that the mistake was an unreasonable one, if the defendant may genuinely have been laboring under it, he is entitled to rely upon it. I think... This is saying, if you so seriously believe that the water balloon was a gun, you are entitled to use that as a defense if you want, but then the burden of proof is placed upon the jury, which then cycles back into the first couple of lines. Boom! Full circle execution. You know, I'm proud of myself for figuring that one out. That one genuinely had me scratching my head for a little while, but I think I speak for everybody. Everybody in this room right now, including me, when I say that this next sponsor really would have made this entire thing just completely null and void. Are you stuck in an intense legal battle in early 19th century London? Are you waiting to be harshly judged by a jury of your peers based solely on what you believe as a person? Are you also worried about the various machines in disrepair all over town and the violent crimes related to them? That's right, you ought to know by now, you need to call Night Mechanic. Your favorite nocturnal next door neighbor just got even more powerful. He has improved his mechanical abilities so much that he has invented and perfected an actual working time machine. Holy shit! And don't forget, Night Mechanic also has complete diplomatic immunity. It's the only reason he was able to acquire so many classified documents for his time machine from well-defended powerful nations and still walk around as a free man. If you choose Night Mechanic to represent you in court, he can use his powers of immunity to bully the prosecution into agreeing with whatever he says, which means you walk away scot-free. There's literally no consequence for hiring this shining beacon of justice. He can also help you in a physical fight, as he's a master of all forms of martial arts. Where did he learn all of this? 
He trained with a superhero dressed in all white that kind of looks like a ghost that gets his powers from an ancient Egyptian lunar deity. What are you waiting for? Stop waiting around for life to happen and take action by the balls. You can't afford to not have help from Night Mechanic. Note, any perceived similarities between Night Mechanic and any other fictional vigilante superhero is purely a figment of your imagination and should be ignored. Night Mechanic is not responsible for any actions you may take in defense of your own beliefs. Please use Night Mechanic services responsibly. I know some of you were wondering if he'd make an appearance when I mentioned a vigilante superhero earlier. The Night Mechanic, official mascot of my second self and I, with an adrenaline-fueled new ad. That is all for the ghost of Hammersmith. Really one of the more interesting ghost stories I've read about. A ghost got murdered. What the hell? Before we go, though, I want to talk a little bit more about the difference between general intent and specific intent, since I think that's kind of what was going on here. General intent is normally what the prosecution has to prove. The result of the action is irrelevant. It only matters that the action itself was a conscious decision. Let's say you have a couple people. Let's call them Ted and Mark. Ted beats the shit out of Mark for sleeping with his wife. Mark was beaten so badly that he had to go to the hospital and later died of his injuries. Wow, Ted really beat the brakes off of that guy. Ted is later arrested for murder. But Ted didn't mean to kill Mark. Maybe, maybe not. But in the eyes of the legal system, all the prosecution would have to prove is that he purposefully attacked Mark, as it was a voluntary action that Ted consciously took, whether he intended to kill Mark or not is irrelevant. He still killed him because of a voluntary action he engaged in. If Ted, however, were to attack Mark with the purpose of killing him, that would be specific intent, intentional commission of a crime to cause a particular result. Whether or not Francis meant to kill the person he believed to be a ghost is irrelevant. He still voluntarily pulled the trigger, which resulted in that man's death. And even if he truly believed Thomas was actually a ghost when he pulled the trigger, that doesn't exclude him from the fact that he actually killed a human. We don't care why this person is dead, just that they are, and that they are because of a voluntary action. Nobody forced Francis to pull the trigger. That was a conscious decision. Okay, that seems like a good place to wrap things up for this week. If you like that story, or just how I tell stories, do me a humongous free favor. Go into Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you can go to leave a comment or a review or a rating or something somewhere. I'm trying to get this show in front of as many people as possible, and you can help me make that happen and make something happen for myself, which I will then use to make more awesome things happen for all you people. It's a full circle symbiotic relationship. Quid pro quo. Scratch my review and rating itch, and then I'll scratch your chaotic comedy murder show itch. Sound good? Thanks again, everybody, for listening. Go tell your friends about this show. And until next time, stay kind. Stay kind.